Let's begin. This is fun. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest, uh, if you've been here before, um, you might know that I try to show an uh, illustration analogy. My one today is my favorite. I think it's funny. I think it's, it's not going to go down well. I can see it now, but I think it's funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> so as you know, we've been going for our Luke series. Uh, we've been enjoying Luke as we started last week with Ian preaching Luke 9 as we have our kind of what feels like five-month adventure in Luke 9. It's about two months that we're spending in this chapter alone. Um, and today I'm touching a story that I'll be honest, I assume that we all know. I kind of call it Sunday school classic story. Uh, you kind of get the birth of Jesus as one. You kind of get the raising of Lazarus as one. You get Jesus' death and resurrection as one. And you get the feeding of the 5,000 as one. How many of you ha- have learned feeding the 5,000 either at school or at Sunday school or anything like that? Yeah, so it's, it's one that we all know. It's one that is so common to us. And so what we like to do is when we kind of read these stories and know them, we kind of play Christian bingo with it. Like I definitely do. When I read the story and and I kind of read the story of it and I go, okay, 5,000 men. And I'm like, oh, actually it was 5,000 men. There could have been way more people. Like, do you know what I mean? We kind of take the hilarity and and, and the power out of it by, by layering on Christian bingo facts that we know about it. It becomes so common to us that sometimes we miss the punch of what he's trying to get across. And so my heart today is to put the punch back in. Because as I was reading this, this verses, these seven verses, obviously it punched me in the gut hard. It was a wonderful reminder of God's power and love for us. And I hope that today as I shared this, what I would call common story to us, that we remind ourselves of the power and the love of God once again. That's my heart. And so um, I'm going to read these verses. I'm just going to bring in uh, John's gospel as well, because this is the only miracle that is an awful gospel, so we know a lot about it. So I'm just going to bring in elements of John's gospel, and then we're going to see what God wants to speak to us. I realize I forgot my timer today, so get ready for a five-hour preach, everyone. Um, Camille is up for it. I'm glad about that. Um, right, I'll put my phone out. Let me read these verses. Um, the words are going to be up on the screen. Uh, so it's Luke 9, 10 to 17, because uh, they're on the screen. Uh, you don't need to look in your phones. I'm reading from the ESV. So if you've got the NIV in front of you, that's fine. It's just a different translation. Cool. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew them apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, him being Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are, going, or we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that we get to publicly read your word and just spend time looking at it. 
I'm so grateful that we get to be this as a family. I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, take over. I pray that you would speak into these passages, just make them alive once again in our heart. And I pray that whatever you want to say, you would say. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Okay, so to pull in John's gospel just a little bit more. When the disciples were like, um, it's kind of end of day, um, what we know of this is that Jesus, after going in the towns, he kind of took them out of it. Um, John, I, I said this to Adam when I was going for my notes, I think John's a bit of a snitch in his gospel. I think it's quite funny because what he does is, in, in Luke, being the scientific mindset, as we know how he writes it, kind of goes to the disciples. John goes, Philip, it was Philip who said it. Philip was the one who complained. Um, so it, it, in John's gospel, it says that Philip said 200 denarii, which is about, um, we're talking about six months' wage for someone. Half a year's wage. They're saying, look, that isn't even enough. Six months' wage is not even enough to feed everyone for us to go buy something. And, the, and the, it was coming to the end of the day. And you probably know this from Sunday school, but John's gospel confirms as well that those who had the, um, the, the person who had the two fish and five loaves was a little boy. And so it was Andrew that we learned from John's gospel who said, there's a boy there that has two fish and five loaves. Jesus says, bring him to me. And all we read of this boy is literally he just gave it to Jesus. That's all we read. And what we also know from John's gospel is when it says they were satisfied, he embellishes it further by saying afterwards, he then, all the crowds start to pray saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And so that's really helpful context to just understand a little bit more the emotion of what was going on. It's really helpful. And all I'm going to look at really today is just that simple act of handing over the two fish and five loaves. That's all I want to look at. Just that simple act of this boy offering two fish and five loaves. And hopefully I'm going to draw out three points from that. And the first point is we partner with God. We partner with God. Hear this out. Put yourself emotionally and mentally in the shoes of the boy. Put yourself in the shoes of the boy. You're, you're in the midst of this massive crowd of people where you can see, you're just seeing crowd upon crowd of people. And you're seeing Jesus and his disciples, all kind of disciples freaking out and worrying, scratching their heads, being like, look, I don't know what to do. Philip, what do you think? Oh, 200 denarii, we don't know what to do. John's writing it down for his gospel later. And you've kind of got this moment, you've got this moment where you're not sure what's going on. And you have one of the disciples come up to you and just says, I see you've got some food there. I see you've got some food there. And, and the reason why he was carrying two fish and five loaves because it was around the time of the Passover. And it wasn't just because he was a, um, a kid and that was all his. He was carrying it probably for his family, being the youngest one or, or, of the boy. He's probably the one carrying it for his family as well. And you have a disciple come up to you and says, I see you've got two fish and five loaves. Jesus needs it. Can you, would you be give it? Would you be able to give it? And you look at your lunch and you look at the disciple and you just go, all right, hand it over. And then you see this miraculous moment where Jesus breaks it and you're sitting down in your group of 50 and food comes to you and you eat and more food comes to you and you eat and more food comes to you and you eat until you're full. And I'm not talking about full like just general Sunday afternoon full. I'm talking about Christmas day full. Like I can't eat anymore. I'm going to be ill kind of thing. That's, what, that's how satisfied I'm talking about. And then you see the disciples carrying around baskets like this. 
It's kind of basket like these. There's another moment that we're going to look at potentially in the future where there's a feeding of 4,000. The baskets are about double full. They would normally have to carry them in cart. But we're talking about baskets that you can carry by hand. And you see the baskets full of food. Imagine yourself in the shoes of the boy. How mad is that? How insane is it? Now, again, let's not put any Christian magic onto this. this is, ready for this illustration? That's my favorite. Imagine, we're not putting any Christian magic on this. The fish, when, when Andrew goes, can I ask for the fish? The boy didn't whip out going, oh, yeah, there you go, Andrew. Here we go. <laughs> for those who are listening to this online, this is a massive fish. This is a hilarious joke. And listen to the crowd. Wow. This has gone down very well. Um, it wasn't a huge fish. Hear, hear me out. One basket wouldn't have been able to carry all the food that the boy had. Think about that logically. One basket that was full at the end wouldn't have been able to carry all the food that the boy originally had. Put yourself in the shoes of the boy. Put yourself in the shoes of the boy. Now, what I think is incredible is not just the miracle alone of what Jesus has done, but the fact that he used the boy. The fact that he used the boy. I mean, we were singing about it today in, in that song, song, Only God. Let me read some of the lyrics to you. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else could whisper and darkness trembles? What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. We only need to look at Luke 8, what we've been looking at. We, do you remember? We've been looking at that God is in charge of, of the weather and of, of nature. God is in charge of supernatural aspects. God is in charge of life and death. And do we think really that he needs a boy to feed 5,000 if he's in charge of all of that? Do we really think that he needs, he needs a boy? He needs a child's lunch to be able to feed 5,000. Do we really think that? Of course he doesn't. But he uses the boy. Of course he doesn't need the boy, but he uses the boy. What an incredible privilege it is for that boy to be used by Jesus to feed 5,000 and more. What an absolute privilege it is. Do you know the wonderful thing? He hasn't stopped. God hasn't stopped. We get the opportunity to partner with God. We get the absolute privilege of partnering with God. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 calls us his workmanship created in Christ to do good works. It's a wonderful thing. I, I, and I don't mean this in... Please hear this with love. God doesn't need us, but he loves to choose and use us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't. But he loves to use us and choose us. This means we've been made in the image of God, saved by the Son of God because of the love of God, but called to serve with God by being workers of God. What a privilege it is. What a wonderful privilege it is. Okay, yes, our roles are radically different. 
compared to what God's role is and what our role is. We still get the privilege. I remember, um, I'm not going to say my age, it was too old, but I remember when I once was making cakes for my mum. Again, I'm not going to say the age was too old, 15. Um, and it was, it was a moment where... It was a moment where she was like, come, help me make this banana cake. And I was like, all right, yeah, fine, I'll make this banana cake. She was like, all right, tell you what, son, you're the spoon guy. I was like, great, the spoon guy. What is that? You're the person who holds the wooden spoon. I was like, okay, fantastic, I know my role. And I'm just there holding this wooden spoon, sometimes mixing a bowl, obviously licking the cake, all that kind of stuff. Not a cake, the mixture, that sounds weird. But, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And afterwards, I, I, I helped my mum make the cake. I made a cake. But all I did was hold a spoon. My mum did all the mixtures. My mum did all the measuring. My mum put it in the oven, but I was the one who helped make the cake. Same, same here. Yeah. Absolute same with Christ. Christ is the one who saves. Christ is the one who heals. Christ is the one that redeems. But I get the privilege of praying. I get the privilege of laying hands and praying for someone. Christ is the one that heals, but I still get to play my part in praying and laying on hands and praying for sickness to go. Christ is the one who saves. Christ is the one is the only one who can show the revelation of who he is. But I get the privilege of inviting someone to Alpha so that they can hear the gospel. Yeah. Our roles are radically different, but I still get the privilege of partnering with God. I still get the wonderful privilege of partnering with God. Beloved family, how available do we make ourselves to partner with God? How available do we make ourselves? How much do we remind ourselves to know I get the privilege of partnering with God. I'm not someone who watches. I'm not someone who can just sit back. But I'm someone who is in the story. Yes, I'm not the main role, but I still get a partner with a great high king who does everything. How much do we make ourselves available to be used by God? Here's the second point I want to draw out. Ooh. Thanks, Rubes. God uses something small to do something big. The beautiful thing here is he, he literally satisfies thousands using something so small. Remember what I said about the two fish and the five loaves? It, it wouldn't have fit in one of the baskets. It's something so small. It would have been lost within a crowd. It could only feed probably a small family, something like that. But yet God, Jesus, does something so miraculous with it. When you look at the Bible, he kind of has a, a routine of doing this, using something so small to do something incredibly miraculous. He used an old barren man and woman in Abraham and Sarah to become the father of nations. He used a man who was anxious to speak and lead an entire nation to freedom through Moses. He used a coward in Gideon to de defeat an army a hundred times bigger than his. He used 12 fearful failures in the disciples to start the church and radically change the world. He used an attack of Christianity in Paul to become his biggest evangelist. And most importantly, he used an ordinary looking man who lived the perfect life to become the scapegoat for all humanity so that we could use and receive salvation forever. God uses what seems to be little to do something that is utterly great. The beautiful thing again, this is a wonderful thing. The Bible hasn't just stopped in the words on the page, but it's come alive today. God hasn't just, he hasn't stopped using two fish and five loaves back then, but he continues it. He does it today. 
Matthew 17, 20 says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, hear me this. I've I've heard that um, said in church multiple times as well. Have you ever seen how big a mustard seed is? Have you seen a big, look, being, being the person I am, I just thought I'd get a packet of mustard seeds, okay? Have you ever seen how big a mustard seed is? I'm going to try not to spill it all over the stage. But in my hand, I've probably got about 10 to 15. Can you see it from there? You probably might be able to see little small specks of dust. Or it looks like, can you see it? If I was to hold one of my fingers, it looks like my fingers are touching each other. Can you see how small a mustard seed is? Have you ever seen how big a mustard tree is? Have you ever seen how big a mustard tree is? Let me show you how big a mustard tree is. Mustard tree is huge. It's a big tree. It's not a small tree. It's a big tree. No one looks at a seed like this and goes, I can see a tree like that. No one looks at a seed like this and sees all the things it can do and thinks of a tree like that. Thinks of a huge tree that separates itself in a field. Yet what Jesus says is if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, something so small, intangible, sometimes not even rememberable, you can say to a mountain, be moved, because nothing is impossible. Carmilla often, uh, with, with such love, says to me, don't, say to your pro- uh, don't talk to your God how big your problem is. Speak to your problem how big your God is. Why? <laughs> why, why can I do that? Because look how incredible our God is. I, d- I don't need to have great buckets of faith. I just need a little bit. But because of the great high king, because of the lion behind me, because of the ruler, the saviour, I can have that faith. He uses something so small to do something so great. This once again establishes the theology we've noticed in Luke of death to ritualistic works and come alive in relational love and faith. Come alive in relational love and faith. It's not about how much I bring to the table. It doesn't matter how great of faith I have or even the works I do. He uses what we have to do something incredible. Now, I'm going to share Najee. I asked Catherine if I could share this because I think it's relatively vulnerable, but hopefully it shares a good point. When we go to other uh, events or church events or, or Ashburnham or festivals, we both have sometimes different responses. Sometimes I look at the leader or the speaker or the person running the games and all that kind of stuff. And my reaction is, I could do better. I'll be honest with you. I kind of look at it and go, I could do that. I I know I have capacity to do that. Catherine's response often, looking at that, and then when coming to church and kind of dealing with stuff, is often going, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I feel I'm, I'm not capable enough of doing this. I'm not doing enough of what I'm meant to be doing. Now, both sides of the the coin, and often when we kind of talk and we deal with it and we're kind of growing and encouraging each other, one another in love, but both sides of the coin is kind of the same argument, which is, I'm not satisfied with what's in my basket. I'm not satisfied with what I'm offering up. I'm not happy with it. I'm being proud and arrogant to say, I can do way more. My works matter a lot more. Catherine's side is going, I don't think what I have is sufficient enough. And sometimes there's a lack of faith. 
There's both sides of the same piece. But actually, what we're both learning on this journey is saying it doesn't matter what I give because God uses whatever I have. It doesn't matter what I do. I don't need to work for this further. I don't need to do things. I don't need to enable the lion. He already rules. I don't need to do anything to make it better or to make it work because God does it all. It doesn't matter how much I have in my basket. What matters is my offering to him. What matters is my move to say, here it is. Wonderful church, I tell you what starts happening when we compare each other to one another is when disunity starts to course. When I start going, I could do that, disunity creeps in. When Catherine starts going, man, I cannot do that, disunity creeps in. Actually, when we go, forget all of that, I'm just here to play my piece in the puzzle. I'm here to serve. God uses that to unify us together and to just do something miraculous and great. He uses something small like two fish and five loaves to do something miraculous. I'll tell you what, how much more would he do with your life? How much more would he do with your life? How much more with me not having to try and achieve and work and churn, but if I was to just say, Jesus, use me, how much more would he do with that compared to just using two fish and five loaves? How much more would he do with your life? Now, something I just want to touch on as the third point here, really, is the disciples' reaction. And this bit, if you're making notes, I'm calling it obedience over fear. I just want to touch on the disciples' reaction because I found it quite challenging. This was where the gut punch came in. I found it very challenging seeing their reaction. I'll tell you why. Because in what Ian spoke about last week was the sending of these disciples out. Basically equipping them with everything that he's taught so far and sending them out. And they were sent out to towns and villages and they were received and they prayed for the sick and the sick were healed and they, they saw people come and want to follow Jesus. And at the beginning of this chapter in verse 10, it says that they came back and shared what happened. And at the beginning, more happened before they left the town. More healings occurred. The disciples were in this moment where they saw literally people healed by them laying hands and praying. They came back buzzing, knowing that Jesus moves. They've experienced it. When suddenly faced with the pressure of feeding thousands upon thousands of people, they crumbled. They, they kind of had that moment of going, oh, Jesus, send them away. We can't handle this. Send them away. It's getting late. Like, have you seen the sky? Like, the sun's going down. It's, it's getting late, Jesus. They've come from a moment of praying for the sick to be healed. And now they're going, look, six-month wages can't pay for everyone. We, we cannot do this. Send them away. It's a weird moment where they've literally been in this spiritual high to a fearful low. I tell you what, I am so grateful that we get to see the disciples' response in this because I see it in my own life. I see it in my own life. I come back from Aspernum or from New Day or even from Pyromania or from church and people have been healed and the lost have been saved and I'm just buzzing. I'm going on Monday and we're like, this is sick. Like, this is unbelievable what God has done. Isn't it incredible what God has done? 
And on my Monday, I then face myself in a difficult scenario. That's nothing like salvation, (laughs) but just a tough, pressure scenario. And I find myself crumbling, falling back into anger, falling back into fear. Uh, The bit of challenge that comes, I then find myself crumbling hard and just going, Jesus, this is too much. I can't handle this, Jesus. This is too much. Everything I've experienced before, I find myself falling back into my old ways and crumbling. I'll tell you what, maybe this is a wrong time of sharing this, but even this summer, when going to New Day and to see youth being healed and then kind of come back from that early and with the summer we've had as a church and praying for healing and seeing healing not answered, I find myself back in a place of going, Jesus, I don't understand, this is too much. And fear and worry and doubt stops creeping his ugly head in that causes us not to want to do it again, causes our faith to start to fail. I'll tell you what I'm even more grateful for. I'm even more grateful for Jesus' response to the disciples in this story. I am so much more grateful for Jesus' response to the disciples. Because what does he say? Does he expect great bounds of faith? Does he go, what have you just done, disciples? Philip, what have you just done? Look at look all the stuff that you've just done. Look at all the healings that have come. What have you just done? Come on, guys. Sort yourself out. Does he say that? No. Does he even say, come on, have a little bit of faith? He doesn't. What does he say? He gives them three simple instructions. Get everyone into groups of 50, distribute the food, and gather the food. That's it. That's, that's what Jesus asked the disciples to do. That's what he said. No faith required. What is needed is just obedience to follow. Just a bit of obedience. When Jesus asked them to do it, they, they did it because they learned to obey previously. But it wasn't because they had great buckets of faith. Please hear me when I say this. It's, it's like the game uh, Simon Says versus doing a trustful. If I play Simon Says with you, everyone would know how to play this game, right? You just got, if I say Simon Says, raise your hand, you'd all raise your hand. You follow obedience. You kind of follow the command. If I was to ask Adam, come stand here. I'm going to take two steps back. I'm going to catch you, trust me, and you fall back. I'm pretty sure Adam would go, I'm all right. I don't want that. I'm okay. Why? Because sometimes it's more easier to have obedience than faith. I'll tell you what, what Jesus is calling out of this is saying, at times, obedience is good. When you don't have faith, obedience is great. Obedience is a good place to be in. Faith is so important. We recognize that. We need to look at God and have faith that he will do everything. But when life takes a turn and we go through a tough season and we have the weight of pressure on our shoulders, obedience counts. Obedience is good. When Paul in 2 Corinthians says that he has this pressure falling on him at the very end of the letter and he calls to Jesus saying, take this thorn out of me three times. Take this thorn out of me, crying and weeping. What's the response he has? It's not go... Have some faith, Paul. The response he gets and he writes in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's response is, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
He's not saying an all happy, clappy response or saying everything's okay. Paul not even saying, I have great faith that something good will come. He's saying, I know that God's power is sufficient for me. So I will lean in him. I'll be obedient to lean in him. Andy Croft from Soul Survivor Watford. When he has gone through a really difficult life, a time with kids being born, with, with a baby being born, and this boy needs surgery every single year for the rest of his life. He, he says, faith is great. But when we struggle to have faith, then obedience is a great substitute for a season. Obedience is a great substitute for a season. Well, it begs the question, what do we need to be obedient about? It begs the question, okay, Jesus, you're saying that we have to be obedient. Well, what do we have to be obedient about? Well, I think Jesus summarizes it greatly in the greatest commandment that he says in Matthew 22 by saying, love the Lord, with your, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. All your heart, digging in deeper in our relationship with God. Digging deeper into it. And being obedient to honour that. So when times get difficult, what, how does our relationship look like? Digging in deeper with our relationship with God and being obedient in that. All of our soul, feeding ourselves with his truth and spending time to be filled in the Spirit. When we go through difficult times, it's not because we have to read the Bible. It's not about having to read the Bible. But we get to read the Bible because in times of difficulty, we can find easy truth in there to remind ourselves. There's no works about having to read the Bible, but it's being obedient to know that to feed our souls right, we dig into the Word of God. Rather than letting lies and, and words crumble us into fear. And all of our mind being discerning to continue to follow his ways. That when he says, do this, don't do that. We're not in that moment of facing pressure when it's difficult to actually do what God says. We're not turning away. But our mind reminds us that we've got to follow what the word of God says. Follow his path, follow his way. There's been times, I'll be honest, that in my own life that Catherine and I, we've had words spoken over us. And we've struggled with it. Because we're like, God, well, I don't know what you're saying. I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. And at times when we're in work, and currently, you know, I'm driving to Reading at the moment, three days a week, and every, oh, by Wednesday, I'm tired. I'm just like, God, why am I doing this? Why, 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 I, I could leave this and do something closer to home. Like, why am I doing this? And not hearing anything back. When I'm crying out to God saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. And I'm crying out. And I don't hear anything back. You know, a beautiful thing is, he speaks to me through this. He speaks me through his word. He speaks through me the time that I get to pray with him. Not in words that I can understand, but just words that I just know. You know, multiple times, as Psalm 46.10 just washed over me. Be still and know that I am God. It's forced me into a time of patience. It's forced me in time of just waiting on God, waiting for him to move. And you know what? I will continue to wait for him to move because I'm learning to be obedient. I might have a lack of faith, but my obedience is saying, God, I will wait on you. I will wait. I will wait. I will wait. I will wait. Beloved family, it's not about having a great body of faith. 
but knowing in simple steps of obedience, our loving Father continues to partner with us and He shows us a path of His plan. And it might not be our desire. It might not be our desire. Learning starts somewhere. And it often starts in a place of confusion or failure where we don't know what to do. But in that moment, what should be our response? That's what matters. Because in that moment, I don't know how much I might have in my basket. I might have the little mustard seed. And I don't know what God's going to do with it. But I'm obedient to say, God, here, take it all. I'm just going to be obedient and trust in you, not with great buckets of faith, but with the little bit that I have, I give it to you. You know, more a moment when you become a Christian, you're essentially doing that. And the moment when you choose Christ and you're saying, you know what, I don't want anything else, but I want to choose him, you're basically putting yourself in that basket and saying, Jesus, I give you all. I give you my life. As I come into land, I just want to summarize it with this. And I'll be honest, um, I, I try to keep it relatively short because I want us to be active in this. I can't preach about partnering with God with us and without us doing something about it. But as I come into land, I just want to end with this. Partnering God is an, is an utter privilege that we can have as we take on the adventure with God, even if we don't understand it. Even if we don't understand it, it's a privilege that we get a partner with God. The wonderful beauty is that we are never alone on this journey. We're never alone. He's always with us. When, when Jesus died on the cross, because God so loved us, he died on the cross, he went to heaven. He didn't go, okay, fine, do, do it yourself. No, he sent a helper in the Holy Spirit to come down and be with us so that we could partner with him every single day. Because of the love that he poured out on us, we would be born into his family due to Christ's death. And by his spirit, we are made fully alive. Therefore, with the little bread and fish I have, he transformed into something so beautiful that it satisfies. It satisfies. It doesn't just quench the first. It doesn't just feed for a second. But it's satisfied. Yes, I get to have daily bread. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to have daily bread with God. But it satisfies the soul. It satisfies. Nothing else and no one else will ever, can ever bring true satisfaction. To bring true peace to the soul. No money, no drugs, no alcohol, no doing things, no accolade, no role, no responsibility, no work, no family, nothing. Nothing can bring true satisfaction to the soul compared to Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is, this is how it works, right? We get satisfaction of the soul. We get to enjoy Jesus. And then what he does, he says, come, follow me. You're going to partner with me. And where you go, I'm going to use you to satisfy others because I want to show my goodness and grace through you. We are not watchers, a wonderful family, but we are participants to partner with God in this wonderful adventure that we have. And if you are in Seven Oaks living here, therefore you have a privilege of partnering with God to share his goodness and grace and mercy to Seven Oaks itself. To help Seven Oaks recognize that they can find true and utter satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone. It is a wonderful partnership that we get with God. So what are we waiting for? What's in your basket? 
What's in your life that you can give to Jesus and he can use? Can you stand with me? That's all right. I'm just going to do two things. And whilst, I'm, whilst people are standing, I, I might be doing this wrong, so please call me out if I am. But those who are part of the prayer team, could you come forward to the front and could you split so half of you are here and half of you on this side? That's the part that I'm not fully sure. I hope there is a, I'm pretty sure. Okay? So if you're part of the prayer team or if you're connect group leader, can you come and can half of you stand on this side and the other half stand on this side? I just want to give two moments here. The moments I want to give is one to those who might have never offered their basket to Jesus. Might have never offered their life to Jesus to say, you know what? I want to give you all that I have. The little bit that I have, I want to give to you. You might have never done that before. You might have never given your life to Christ. I want to give you a chance today. I'll tell you what, it's the greatest adventure you'll ever have. That giving your life to Jesus is the greatest adventure you'll ever have. By just saying, Jesus, here's my basket. And it's a very simple step that the course Alpha teaches us to do. Which is, sorry, thank you, please. Sorry, Jesus, for all that I've done. Thank you that you died on the cross and you chose me. And please have my life. And I want to give you a chance to do that today. So just in a moment, I'm just going to ask everyone that eyes to be closed. And I'm just going to ask, just softly and quietly, and I'll be honest, I say this from a pastoral place, not because it makes any difference, because it's the heart that counts. But I'm just going to ask, while everyone's eyes are shut, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, for the first time, if you can just raise your hand now. For the first time, if you want to give your life to Jesus, just raise your hand now. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to just read a prayer that Alpha helps us with. And, and I'll just ask you, I just want to pray it from the bottom of your heart. And I would love to, if you pray this prayer, I would love to speak to you afterwards. Here we are. Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.